Hi, and welcome to episode number seven of What I'd Wish I'd Known, the Google Partners bi-weekly podcast on how to be strategically tactical with me, your host, Alex Langsher. What I'd Wish I'd Known is where I get to ask an agency veteran to share their top five lessons learned on a specific aspect of growing an agency, digital marketing, or Google products. I like to call it strategically tactical because my goal is to get our guests to think hard about the five most important practical things that they did that produced significant change in value in their career to date. Their insight is your chance to save years of trial and error by learning from those who are now at the top of their game. One of the most important and yet supremely difficult things for any company to do is to establish and nurture a culture that promotes and encourages innovation. While we often take our cues from the larger companies that have linked their brands to the idea of innovation, it can be a trickier problem for many agencies, particularly those that are mid-size, to tackle this point. It seems that in many smaller agencies, the need to provide innovative approaches and services is part of the DNA of being a scrappy newcomer with a different point of view for the market. But as these same agencies grow and mature, this innovation spirit can sometimes flag as the culture and the clients shift in size. Some could argue that this is precisely the time when being innovative is most important and the need to continue to reinvent itself is at its greatest. So how can we make sure that innovation in approach, process, technology, culture, etc., remain a part of the business ethic and the agency DNA? I'm a very big believer in this area and I often talk to people about innovation and initiative. But I find that in any company, making innovation and initiative stick is a real challenge. Enter Vicki Brock. Who is Vicki? Vicki is an entrepreneur. She's an award-winning innovator and the CEO of a high-growth technology startup, Clear Returns, which helps retailers boost profits by understanding and tackling their returns. Named by Forbes.com and Bloomberg as one of the top nine female tech CEOs to watch, she is the winner of the Innovator of the Year at the FDM Every Woman in Technology Awards, and she has led Clear Returns to be named top tech startup in Europe in the European Commission Tech All-Stars competition. And as if that weren't enough, she graduated from King's College London, Birkbeck, and MIT, and is a Director Emeritus of the Digital Analytics Association. I've known Vicky now for the past 10 years, and uh, through that time, I've seen her grow her company and really take on this challenge of building a truly great company, and it's just with such great pleasure that I welcome her to the podcast. Welcome, Vicky. Thank you. I know that probably was difficult to listen to, but Vicky, you, you live all the way up in Glasgow, Scotland, uh, so you're Glaswegian, right? We call them Glaswegian? Yeah, I'm adopted, but yes. You're adopted, okay, <laughs> I'm all right. adopted, Ouija. Well, what can you tell us about yourself that's unique? So I'm not from a maths or a computing or a data background, even though that's kind of where I've made my career. I have an English degree from my from my sins, and until very recently, I was actually the only person in my family ever to go to university. And that's really shaped, um, I think, who I am. It's not just in terms of resilience and um, adaptability, but also what some might politely describe as my very non-standard approach. Um, I think it's because I'm not following an obvious precedent. I'm making it up as I go along. And you have to look around for wonderful examples to learn from. And, and that's what I've done. What a great story. You know, uh, being the first in the family university is, you hear a little bit less of it today than you used to, but it, it, it really reflects right for, I guess, the get-go, your, your innovative style. Yeah, absolutely. 
<laughs> All right. Well, so Vicky, you know the deal, right? It's uh, where I get to ask you this time where I get to ask you, what are the top five lessons learned that you would tell your younger Vicky self at the start of your career about this, you know, really special thing of developing and instilling a culture of innovation in an organization? Yeah, I think my first one, I've been thinking hard about this, and my first one takes it right back to, to day one almost. But obviously, at the at the point of any company's growth, there are, there are multiple places where you can revisit day one. Um, and that is to understand and, in fact, actively influence and structure your team mindset. Um, because there's some very fundamental attitudes um, and outlooks to making not just innovation work, but to take the risk behind innovation. So I, these days, I always look at people's strength finders. So I do this for every pre-hire, and I've actually not hired on occasion when my gut has been backed up with a strength finder that, that just doesn't feel like the fits right. Because, uh, Vicky, yeah. Vicky, are you going to share with us what do you mean by strength finders? Yeah, it's, it's one, of the, one of the many tests. Um, Gallup runs this particular one, and it's really all about the positive. It's about the individual's outlook, attitude to risk, whether they're very deliberate, whether they love to learn, all of that kind of thing. Because there's a couple of mindsets early in the game that you really need. And if I could sum up it, if I could sum it up in two words, it's yes and. It's this idea that yes and we could do this and yes and we could do this. And it drives certain people crazy. It's like, can we stop talking about ideas and actually start doing something? But like, no, you need to let that run for way longer than you actually think. And I've learned that the most problematic mindset you can have at the very beginning is the no but. A critic, a cynic is really, really important in a company. Um, the realist that grounds people like me is essential. But you can't have the bubble of creativity and the bubble of innovation popped too early. It, it does need to breathe and thrive and be encouraged. And the second part of that is is about risk. And this is perhaps more relevant to, to a founding team or a new branch or a team that you're going to send out and do something that may not work. They need to be psychologically comfortable and the company make them psychologically comfortable with the idea that it might not work. And it was a lesson I was told that um, you should always get people to have skin in the game, literally financial skin in the game. And, and I didn't believe it when I set up this company. I was so happy that people wanted to work with me. I didn't dare ask them to put some money on the table to be part of my project because that seems so counterintuitive. But actually, it was hugely significant because if they weren't prepared to put a little something, you know, $1,000 on the table to be part of this, they really weren't comfortable with the risk involved that it might fail. And the fact it might fail is true, it's real, it's important, and you should still do it anyway. Wow, Vicky, there's so much that you just shared in that first answer. I don't know where to begin. Um, let me go back to the, the, the beginning here about the, the yes and. So when you speak about the yes and, it's, and this mindset of, of wanting to do more and seeing more that I can do and, and this kind of the excitement about the possibility, um, you're, what I hear you also saying is that you you do need to let that roll. You don't you don't want to stop that too early, and you're looking for those people that have that type of uh, um, perspective. 
for, but where do you pull that back? Like, is there a point that you do pull it back or, or cause the other side of it is the no, but right. And you're saying the no, but can pop the bubble, but, but how do you focus the yes and so it just doesn't get scattered? Yeah, so this actually starts to take me into point two, which is product market fit, or in an agency context, this could be service market fit, innovation market fit. It's about it's about that process of taking an idea and executing it. I mean, an idea is is one percent. You know, it's it, it's nothing. I have like. 500 impossible ideas every day and some of them are wonderful some of them stay in my brain for hours days weeks but an idea is nothing without execution but I think that yes and bit is when you let it run enough to galvanize energy and excitement and to not stop at the first possible shape of it so it could be uh, to take a I did this with a class actually. I did this in a school, and I had them in pairs, and they were only allowed to say yes and. Uh, so the first person, I got them worrying about things in their life, and it's like I really hate it when the bus doesn't come, or I hate it when my sister spends too long in the shower, or I wish that I didn't have to write in my exams and that my pen would just write the answers for me. And so, and the other person's going yes and. Wouldn't it be great if and yes and. But actually, what that team of girls came up with was something really different. They came up with a self-writing pen and they, by the time they went through the yes and, this wasn't about them cheating in exams. It was about helping people that had got dexterity issues be able to be more efficient in their life because they let the idea run and run and run until it got to the place it was a suitably shaped idea that could be productized, servitized, scaled, or at least tested in the market. In some way, and, shape, or form. And are you saying that uh, letting it run its course, that there was kind of an autocorrect amongst the people that are doing the yes and, yes and, at some point they start to realize that we need to kind of bring this back to earth or, or you know, what, well, what's going on there? It's, it's, making the, um, it's making the idea less personal to one. I mean, when I started this company, when I started Clear Returns, its first iteration was to help me find perfect fitting trousers. <laughs> um, now I have a data tech that predicts and prevents returns. Um, you know, the very first iteration of the idea was something that was very personal to me. I just was sick of having to return all of these things because um, I couldn't find the right thing. And actually then it, it went through version after version of the idea as people said, yeah, and, or indeed at some point, no, but. And it shaped itself into something else to the point that it was then ready to take out to the world and validate very quickly. And this is the next thing, you know, you have to let go of the, when you've got something that is shaped enough to test in some way, shape or form and get a little bit of data behind it, like, could this work? Would somebody want it? Is it physically possible to do with science and tech as it is? You know, would it take every living resource on the planet to make this happen? Is, is it possible? Is it desirable? Is it executionable? That's almost when you move your, um, you know, your biggest idea factory people aside to doing more of the same and bring in your people who are obsessed about validating testing proving this um because i know i'm a natural idea person 
And I, my single fault that I've made more than once, and I, I wish I could learn the lesson faster because it's a scary fault, is I think that I have product market fit or service market fit long before I actually do. And this is, this is a known problem. This is kind of my second, this is really my second point is you probably don't have it when you think you have it. Um, I highly recommend reading the book Crossing the Chasm, but there are various lectures freely available on this MIT and things from MIT and things like this, which is about the concept of crossing the chasm. And it's about the difference between... fantastic book. Yeah, it is. The people that will try anything innovative simply because it is innovative. They they try everything. These are not people that are representative data points to you. They're almost not helpful because the only thing that is interesting to them is that it's new. And then they'll drop it. Then you've got your early adopters who can be who are very excited and creative and they want to be part of this and they shape it. But they may not shape your idea in the direction <laughs> that the rest of the world wants to take it. The hardest bit of all is getting from these early adopters to the mainstream. And I think I've made the mistake of really, and my product team have made the mistake of been so focused on iterating around these early innovators that it's a rude rude awakening when you go out into the real world of procurement and you understand what a the how the majority of the market buy and that they're not excited about its newness and they're not excited about its innovation they want something that does what it says on the tin or meets the promise or, or very specifically fits with the value if it's the case of an agency I mean the cultural value or the functional thing that they're buying and and that's a massive challenge you know uh, I want to move on but I, I before we do I just want to come back to two points the first one is execution and I fully agree with you I mean execution is hard if it was easy everybody would execute but it's hard making sure that the organization has the tools to be able to execute on the idea and not just execute halfway but fully I mean that's that's a clear management function and, and in, a, in a I think feel you know instilling a culture of innovation people need to know that if the idea is worthy and and has some you know, legs to it that will support that execution. Um, and that, that's right. And, and, and that's where you kind of almost, you, you, you almost need to move your biggest idea factory individuals out of the process in the nicest possible way because, and I, I'm left to my own devices, I would be this person. You know, 90% of the way through execution would have a better idea. And, mm -hmm. <laughs> you, know, you know, this whole thing, yeah. Why don't we do something shinier and better? And I mean, I recognize that in myself, but I personally do have to surround myself with far more dry, operational, process-driven people than I am personally interested in or capable of being. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I know I totally get it. And and because we're, our time is getting a little bit short here, I did want to just say that uh, one thing which I remember reading a long time ago about Steve Jobs was he, he said that, you know, true artists ship, which was this idea that you can be a great innovator, but if it doesn't ship, it doesn't actually exist. So yeah. the, 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 the trueness of the idea is when it actually ends up shipping. And I think this is exactly what you're saying here in this point. So with that said, let's move on to point number three, Vicky. 
Yeah, breaking up the silos. I think one of the worst things an agency can do is um, almost kind of like have a creative team. Um, I know that there are certain design and typically creative functions, but um, cross-pollination is the key. And as part of that, um, you know, this, this take these two points together, sales is absolutely everybody's business. Um, I love, you know, what I do these days is, however painful it is, I'll sometimes have developers reading sales copy. I'll take data scientists to sales meetings. Likewise, you know, we'll have our um, business side or our, or our sales, HR, people like that um, doing user testing um, or stress testing because the, the sales and silos are like enemies of each other um now we we kind of do our brown bag lunches we've got a crazy little non-essential to innovation i ha have to say but but useful little dog running around which is probably you know the most um de-siloing thing that it's possible to have um because that goal is getting to the point where everybody is thinking about selling as their business and it's not the exclusive ownership of 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 one person or one team. I, I, what I think I hear you say is you're validating something that you know we've seen built into architecture and workspaces now, probably for about the last eight years, which is this thing of these creative spaces, you know, where you're trying to establish these common grounds where people from different areas will come together in in a physical location in order to spur the exchange of ideas which is effectively breaking down of barriers so you know on this in this particular point i think that uh your experience fully aligns with the, the larger perspective on this and it reinforces the validity of this point even you know regardless of the size of the organization yeah, I mean, and we're still relatively small and, and people can drive each other mad, you know, with background noise levels or somebody's having a high, somebody else is having a low and then the dog's running around the middle barking. But actually, you know, as long as there are spaces where people who need to be quiet can retreat to, um, as long as they don't box themselves in and fail to emerge ever again, because that's a problem in its own right. And that's just kind of somebody building their own little personal wall that's not healthy. Um, that physical environment is important because it leads to the mindset. Yeah, absolutely. What's your point four? Yeah, well, it, it's it's it sales belong to everybody. Um, this took oh, a I long time. <laughs> yeah, this took a long time for me to learn. I feel I was under pressure very early on. Once I had investment um, I, and a board and all of that kind of thing, I was un under pressure to be a proper CEO instead of a startup CEO. And I was under pressure to stop doing things and step back and have people that do stuff. Every, you know. And I think one of the common pressures is, you know, you need to go and get your sale, your rock star sales director and then everything will be okay. And, you know, we went through a process of a number of individuals that didn't work. And what I learned out of that, in the end, it wasn't about the individual. <laughs> it wasn't about any of those individuals. It was assuming that kind of you needed this person on a white horse who was going to be your sole knight of sales. And actually, that's just wrong. There's, I, I feel as, as more than ever, um, I must be involved in the sales. But so does everybody in here. I mean, some of our best leads have come from when people, well, some of our data science team have been out at a meetup and they've been talking to somebody and they've matched up with their peer and they've brought that back in as a, as a follow-up. It, it sales really is everybody's problem. And I, I would look to, I would I'd, I'd highlight to kind of boards, investors, 
in this space to perhaps let your CEO be more stuck into that for longer because it's so important. Well, what you say actually is something that's been said. I mean, this is a still a very early days in the in the partners podcast, but I've heard this mantra of sales is everybody's business. Everybody has a hand in sales. It's not just a sales function, although they are of course lead point on many of it. Just repeated over and over and over again. And in fact, you know, we say it all the time at Cardinal Path is that, you know, everybody's job is to earn sales the right to ask for more business. Uh, and that we all have a hand in that by by focusing what we do and executing with excellence. So this aspect that it's, it's you know, everybody's responsibility, uh, I, I totally get. So would you, would, I know you had an agency prior to Clear Returns and was this something that you also pushed in the agency space as well? Definitely. Um, I mean, I think it was in our. I, I think it was in our DNA in the agency without me realizing it. And um, you know, now with, with with this company, years are years go by, and the myth kind of gets built up around you. And I, I sometimes even hear my own kind of executives or board going, "Oh yeah, you know, but Vicky, you're like, you're great at sales. You're the sales engine, etc." It's like, no, we we all are. But I think in an agency environment. We just did that. I think the difference was when I came into this company and, and the difference between the two being I had external investment in this company was almost that pressure to create a grown-up structure when the structure that you had and the approach that you were taking, while scrappy and not necessarily anywhere near as efficient as it needed to be and should be, which is actually my point five, um, it, it was fit for purpose. Um, and the, the you know departmentalizing sales is is just deadly a, a huge risk um, something I will never let happen again. And, and how does that tie back to instilling the culture of innovation? Maybe you can just link those two things from your give me an example which demonstrates the point. Yeah, well, I mean, basically, I think you have to extend the um, definition of innovation right through. To, it's not just an idea, it's just not just something that's executed, but it's something in the end somebody hands over money for and is satisfied with. You know, they bought it, they received it, whether that's a product or a service, and they were, if not delighted, because not everything, frankly, is delightful. Some things that do their some things that are brilliant are brilliant almost by the fact that you don't notice them occurring and you take them for granted. So delight is, is would be a word I object to but the fact is they buy it they use it and if you try to take it away from them in fact if you paid them to let you take it away they'll hang on with their tooth nails to, to keep uh, sorry with their fingernails to keep it mm -hmm. I mean I think that is where an innovation definition should be extended all the way through and in that definition it being bought loved and used is where you know sales is part of innovation if if you come up with a great idea and nobody wants to buy it then frankly it's not an innovation <laughs> i mean i i think that's how i'd look at it now yeah and, and i think what i hear you saying is that sales has an input to the innovation process because at the end of the day they've got to go and sell it so you can you can innovate the product but again going back to your point about breaking down silos that also includes how sales will be able to talk to or speak to the service of the product that you're developing 
Yeah, I mean, I think the, the most unhealthy, expensive scenario is when sales are departmentalized away and they're going, we just sell it, you build it, you make it perfect, you, you give me the product sheets, you give me the feature roadmap, um, that's all your responsibility, I'll just go out and sell it. Mm. I think what is, I mean, I don't think... I can't see how that works. I'm sure there are scenarios for very fixed products, very established products where that can work. But but in an innovation or a tech or a service context, I don't see how that works. I think that um, that sales feedback into the product is how you innovate. You know, it it it, it is one and the same thing. If 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 sales is cross business function, then there is no them and us about the owner of the product and the seller of the product. They're all the same people. So violent agreement with you on that. Vicky, I could talk about this with you, I think, for another hour. This has been just so, so interesting to me. And your perspective is um, refreshing and, and really useful and lots of you know crunchy information that you've shared with us. So I just want to say just a huge thanks to you for being available and sharing your knowledge and perspective on this and, and truly the, the experience of the last 10 years as you've gone from the agency into the product space. So thank you so, so much for being with thank us today. Thank you. A pleasure. It's been great. And thank you to the listener. appreciate you uh, joining and listening into our Google Partners podcast. We appreciate you taking the time to do so. We look forward to having you come to our next podcast. And if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Partners podcast. We're now available on Google Play, iTunes, and most recently Stitcher. So we're all the channels. We're kind of expanding our availability and reach. And we look forward to having you on our next podcast. Until then, thank you. And until next time.